optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now what is the appropriate time? What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Thrive Market. Thrive Market saves me a ton of money, and it's perfect for these crazy times. Thrive Market is a membership-based site on a mission to make healthy living easy and affordable for everyone. You can regularly save 25 to 50% off of normal retail prices with member-only prices for anything you can imagine, really, whether it's keto, paleo, gluten-free, vegan, whatever, you can sort by that. You can find all types of food. You can find supplements. You can find non-toxic home products, clean wine, dog food, just about anything. And let me give you a personal example of just how much you can save. So my last order, I ordered Primal Kitchen mayonnaise, which is made with avocado oil. It's delicious. Justin's almond butter. And the first was 25% off. The Justin's almond butter was 30% off. Rouse homemade marinara sauce, which is awesome, 26% off. All said and done, at the end of my shopping, I saved $39 on my order. So members, and I'm a member, can earn wholesale prices every day and save an average of $30 on each order. I'll come back to that. And through Thrive Gives, their one-on-one membership matching program, every paid Thrive Market membership is matched with a free one for a low-income family in need. So go to thrivemarket.com slash Tim today to give Thrive Market a try. You can select the membership model that best fits your lifestyle. They have one-month and 12-month membership options. Choose a free gift up to $22 in value when you join today and purchase the one-year membership. And just remember, Thrive Market membership is risk-free. You can take the first 30 days to decide if Thrive Market is right for you. If it's not, just cancel within those 30 days and get a full refund. This is what I offered my mom. (laughs) So again, that's thrivemarket.com slash Tim. By the way, my mom kept using it. Thrivemarket.com slash Tim. Check it out. This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs. Small businesses have unique needs. A lot of you know this. I know this. And even with the uncertainty these days, one thing stands unchanged. And that is the importance of having the right people on your team. But hiring can be hard. It can be really expensive if you make mistakes, very painful if you get it wrong. I've certainly had that experience and I'm not eager to repeat it. So I try to do as much upfront screening as possible. When your business is ready to make the next hire, LinkedIn Jobs can help you screen candidates with the hard and soft skills that you're looking for. They'll match your position with qualified members so that you can find the right person quickly. Using LinkedIn's active community of more than 690 million professionals worldwide, LinkedIn Jobs can help you find and hire the right person faster. So when your business is ready to make that next hire, find the right person with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want and get the first $50 off. Just visit linkedin.com slash Tim. Again, that's linkedin.com slash Tim to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, 
probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com TFS. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hello, boys and girls, ladies and germs. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where it is my job to attempt to deconstruct world-class performers of all different types to tease out the habits, thought processes, best practices, creative flow, process, etc., that you can apply to your own lives. My guest today is Sia. You can find her on Twitter, at Sia, S-I-A. Sia is one of the most fascinating people I have come across in the last few years so unorthodox, gets away with so much, and is the inveterate experimenter. I find her fascinating. She is an Australian singer, songwriter, director, screenwriter, and pop icon. Her current single, Together, is from her forthcoming album and motion picture music due out later this year, 2020. Last year, she partnered with Diplo and Labyrinth to form the group LSD. Their debut album, Labyrinth, Sia, and Diplo present LSD, has 1 billion plus streams to date. She released the Grammy-nominated This Is Acting in 2016 to much critical acclaim and cemented her role as one of today's biggest stars and sought-after live performers with her sold-out Nostalgic for the Present headline tour. She has more videos in YouTube's Billion Views Club than any other female on the planet. Her massive single Cheap Thrills was a multi-format global radio hit and was one of the longest-running singles at Top 40 of 2016. Along with her own successes, Sia has written global smashes, and we're talking 100-plus songs, for today's biggest acts, including Beyonce, Kanye West, Rihanna, Britney Spears, Katy Perry, and many, many more. She's really polymath. She has worked on herself. She has saved herself in more ways than one. Once again, you can find her on Twitter, at Sia, Instagram, at Sia Music. And without further ado, please enjoy a very wide-ranging conversation with Sia. I'd like to start in a weird place because, like you, (laughs) (laughs) 
like, before you press record, I'm like, oh, yeah, weird place. Because before you press record, I was like, you, you were telling me that I had, um, I, if I wanted, I could edit anything if I had felt embarrassed about what I said or something like that. Of course. And you very, mm-hmm. kind, very kindly. And I said, so I could do this interview on Ketamine. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. You absolutely could. If only I'd known. And if only you'd known, and you know, as as I said when you mentioned that, uh, speaking as someone who may or may not have experience with ketamine, that you often sound better to yourself than you do to other people. <laughs> so, well, I actually do get ketamine infusions from my chronic oh, you do? pain. So, mm. but um, in but in LA they do it where you're totally out, so you don't feel you're not lucid at all, and you don't have really. Problem trip at all but here um here in this other place where i'm at right now <laughs> trying to maintain some modicum of uh, privacy <laughs> um they're they're more east meets west so it's a doctor and they do the, the infusion but they also do like a sort of intention and yeah they hit the hit the metal bowl and say what's your intention like well what, what want the pain to turn from red to blue or blah 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 and and that i actually had lucid experiences and that as a sober woman has been really fascinating mm, i imagine so i i did a a sequence of five intravenous ketamine infusions over the span of two weeks because i'd read about its application to suicidal ideation and chronic pain separately and wanted to have the firsthand experience not because i was suicidal but because to recommend it to anyone who might come to me with suicidal ideation i wanted to have the firsthand experience to see what the effects and side effects were like at different dosages and i found it to have a very surreal dissociative effect just subjectively what i didn't expect because i wasn't thinking about it for the chronic pain i had this acute pain in my mid back this neurological pain yeah. that had plagued me for years mm-hmm. and then i noticed a few weeks after ending the ketamine no pain in my mid back it was incredible. it was near miraculous it's what what incredible. what has been your experience and what yeah that's my experience too and i mean that was my experience even when i wasn't doing in LA when I was doing it not lucidly <laughs> and then when I and as a sober woman doing it lucidly that was very confronting and I I thought I was going to have a bad trip I'm like I'm a bad tripper I'm a bad tripper I'm like I've never had a good trip I like anytime I did acid it was bad like I don't I like I'm a bad tripper make sure you give me lots of first sad which is like a you know a sedative and then he explained to me that the more Versat he gave me, the more ketamine he would have to give me. And that he would give me <laughs> Versat, less Versat, he could give me less ketamine, and that that would be nicer for my body. And so he ended up giving me half the dose that I get in L.A., but he also gave me half the dose of uh, Versat. And I had just a wonderful time. <laughs> I just had a wonderful <laughs> time. I was like, <laughs> he writes down everything you say. And so afterwards, uh, he was like, okay, so here we go. Here's the things that you said. Here's the things you said. Um, I am a microbe. Am I, <laughs> am I upside down? Am I upside down? Oh, okay. Am I dying? 
okay, I'm not dying because like like they'll they'll lift the earphones off because they've got like uh, like uh, theater wave music and stuff going on in your ears and stuff, and they'll say, "No, see, you're not dying. You're just focus on your intention." And with the one in LA, I would never wake up or even be conscious enough to know or to say, "Am I dying?" <laughs> <laughs> and so I found it quite. I, as someone who has had suicidal ideation, wh- what worked for me actually was Prozac in the end. I had, but I didn't. I hadn't tried ketamine for that. But I did. I had complex PTSD. I, I believe my I may have gotten through it in the last three years. I've done so much painful work, but yeah, I barely left the house, and I, I would only go to <laughs> I would only go to like. Yeezy's Sunday service because I love the singing so much and I love and I fell in love with the Kardashians. They're so nice <laughs> and I felt safe around them. <laughs> <laughs> it was such an interesting experience. And so I would stay at home mostly and um, just I have a projector that projects television or movies, whatever, on, onto the ceiling and I uh, above my bed. And so I basically just lie prone and is that the word prone? Yeah, that would be, uh, let me think about this. Prone, supine, I believe prone. I believe you got it right. Is that right? I think prone might be stomach down. Like if you're in a prone position. In any case, you're on your bed on your back. I'm on my bed on my (laughs) back with my face up. (laughs) Looking at this enormous projector screen, pretty much 16 hours a day for three years <laughs> and only leave the house on Sundays to go to the Sunday service and sing my heart out and clap and dance and dance around. And I was um, having a lot of suicidal ideation and um, because of this chronic pain and because I guess I have an attachment injury and I'm really into attachment theory. And so, but I believe I may may have earned secure attachment, which is going to mean nothing to so many of your listeners. Yeah, I mean, we can talk about attachment theory if, if, if anybody's interested. I think it's the cutting edge of, it's, it's based on science and it's the cutting edge of, um, uh, of where psychology is going and should be going, <laughs> is attachment theory. And it's pretty new. <laughs> Well, let's let's talk about it because uh, I've had a book recommended to me a number of times. I've not read it. Fortunately for me, I have a girlfriend who synthesized it for me. But the book attached. <laughs> oh yeah. And well, I believe wrong stuff in there. That's the only reason I don't recommend it. It also just refers to you. It, it, it's like it's the baby version. So yes, as baby, you're either ambivalent, avoidant, or preoccupied. But as we grow, we develop these strategies that happen in the first 10 months of our, of our life, based on the care that we're given, we develop one of five strategies and sometimes disorganized, all of them, like maybe maybe all five. So, so the strategies are uh, dismissive, preoccupied, fearful avoidant, which is now called disorganized, unresolved, and secure. Which nobody in Hollywood is. <laughs> Actually, that's not true. I think John Legend might be secure. <laughs> He's so nice. <laughs> um, 
But yeah, there's um. So I I took an AAI, which is called an attachment and assessment inventory. I send it off to Harvard, and they, you know, there's like three people that <laughs> work in that department, and they uh, study the the interview and the language and the tone because it's recorded as well. And then they um, report back this uh, attachment theory, which was started by John Bowlby in the. 40s or something and then but really only came to to light in 1984 or 85 i can't remember i'll say a lot of wrong things here um (laughs) that's okay that's that's what show notes are for don't worry (laughs) (laughs) but i do know that in the first 10 months of your life you are basically told who you are and what to experience in the world and how to behave and how to respond in any situation. It all happens in the first 10 months of your life based on the care that you're given. So I was complexly disorganized <laughs> when I met George Haas, who has been helping me with my attachment repair. And I mean, I'm so excited because I'd got one of my son has had an attachment assessment interview and he was less complexly disorganized than me and I was so happy for him because I've actually managed to like earn some secure categories so there's different categories there's like seven categories I don't know what they are I'm not that smart but I just know that I have two left on me that that aren't secure that are both fear related the last time I took an attachment but I started with only one secure feature so out of seven and now I have, I have five. Seems like a big improvement. Yeah. So, and also, I guess I should say that attachment injury is addiction. It causes addiction. It's not in a genetic disorder. It's not a disease. It's an attachment injury that occurred in the first ten months of your life. And that doesn't mean your parents were bad or mean or cruel. They may have been benignly neglectful, or maybe their dog died the day that you were born. Or, you know, there's so many reasons why your primary caregiver may have been preoccupied or unable to care for you, unable to give you the the things that you needed for your brain to develop properly, securely. So, yeah, it was about 50%, I think, of the population is secure. That's if you take out poverty and then otherwise it's about 30%. How have you found studying attachment theory, doing the assessment, doing the work has impacted your life? I mean, it seems like you've certainly made a study of it and taken it seriously. What are the yeah, what are the outcomes that you've seen in your life or the changes? Well, I'm I'm not afraid anymore. I I've spent my whole entire life being extremely afraid. Uh, I've been and it's especially in, in personal relationships, interpersonal relationships. I've had um the attachment strategy that I have had was, you know, previously called fearful avoidant and now is called disorganized. And I was complexly fearfully avoidant. <laughs> and and um, what that means is that the care was inconsistent. So you just don't know what you're going to get. So you keep turning around and putting your arms out. If you imagine a toddler, so you put your arms out and you say, maybe this time they'll pick me up. No, okay, maybe this time. And you keep imagining it, toddler turning around and putting their arms in the air. 
and maybe they'll get kicked in the chest or maybe they'll get picked up. You never know. And, um, you know, so there's just a, I mean, <laughs> I mean, not saying that my parents <laughs> kicked me in the chest, but an extreme, <laughs> an extreme analogy or metaphor. What is it? Is it an analogy or a metaphor? I don't know, a parallel. Well, it, it depends, I guess, if they literally kick you in the chest yeah. or not. So it's, since sure since they, they didn't, I guess. I don't think they kicked me in the chest. I'm pretty sure they did. <laughs> but, um, you know, you just like, uh, or if they didn't come when you cried. If they didn't come, there's these seven stages, like a baby, right? So the baby looks cute. First thing it does when it wants, it needs something or it's in pain or it needs to eat or it needs its nappy change or it's uncomfortable. Is it, it First thing it does is it looks cute. And the second thing it does is when that doesn't work to get the attention of the caregiver, they look confused. And then they'll whimper. And then they'll, I think it's, uh, they'll intermittently cry. I think that's what's next. And then that's when you should definitely pick them up when they're intermittently crying. Then the next one will become crying. And then next one is tantrum, this full screaming like anger, rage, like why is nobody coming to get me? And then the baby's brain goes into complete limbic shutdown because it thinks it's going to die. So people who sleep train their babies who think that it works, yeah, it works because your baby thinks it's going to die and it gives up on life <laughs> and stops crying. Uh, so it only works if you go back in there at that intermittent crying point and if you go in when they're intermittent crying and you, you say, I love you, baby's name, let's say George. I love you, George. But it's time to go to sleep now, but we're just right out here. And that creates object constancy, which it m makes for way less psychos in the world. <laughs> and way less like, but you know, people like waiting by the phone, waiting for the text, waiting for the text, waiting for the text. Um, like, so what happens to people who didn't get picked up during the intermittent crying phase or didn't get like um, just at least reassured during the intermittent crying phase? If they were left and they got into the limbic shutdown, now as adults, when someone that they're has captured their projection, like a, a person, a, like a partner, like a love interest or something, a person of great interest to you <laughs> captures your projection, and you text them, and then if they don't text you back, you start to feel sick and panicky. And what's actually happening is just the same thing as when you're a baby. It was uh, the seventh stage of limbic shutdown. So the, all the same neurochemicals that were dumped into your body when you're a baby and you thought, I'm going to die because nobody's coming, that happens as an adult. The same exact same brain chemistry happens. And so all these human adults are, you know, sitting at home waiting for a text, feeling like they're going to die. Like, it, there's so many of them and it's like you know it's not everybody secure people don't feel that way but people who are preoccupied or or disorganized fearfully avoidant they do and they suffer greatly because of it and it, it's merely because nobody came and reassured them at the intermittent crying point when they were a baby <laughs> that they're okay it's time to go back to sleep now and they leave the room then the baby if it does a thing it does a cry you know that cute, confused, whimper, intermittent cry, 
Then they go in, reassure them again. Then time to go to sleep, George. And if you do that, that's actually healthy sleep training, as long as you do that at the intermittent crying part. But if you leave a baby to cry, just cry it out, you're damaging them forever and ever. And actually you're creating an addict without knowing. Let me ask... Yeah. If, if I could, just because you mentioned the, you're talking about upbringing, you're talking about uh, on some level, it seems like, you know, uh, unpredictability as a factor, that's one of the factors that might lead to this fearful, avoidant, now just disorganized complex of sorts. Could you speak to, in the course of doing homework for this conversation, I came across a discussion of and this is not to pin everything on on a single parent or either both parents, but mm-hmm. your dad having two different personalities with two different names. Could you speak to this? Yeah, he he had um he was he had his real name is Phil, but he had a bad temper sometimes. And when he would have his bad temper, he would if he would seemingly turn into a different person, and then he would come back from being angry, and he. <gasps> He'd like, he'd be like, oh, sorry about that. Sorry about Stan's behavior. Sorry about that, darling. Sorry about that. And um, and so uh, you know, when I, when I grew up, I thought, oh, watching all the movies, I thought, oh, he has multiple personality disorder. And um, finally, when I was twenty five, I thought everyone's dad had two personalities until I was like twenty five. But then I realized that no, I don't know whether it was, and it's now called dissociative identity disorder. It's not called multiple personality disorder. It's also misrepresented hugely in the media because nobody who has multiple personality disorder or dissociative identity disorder, which is what it's called now, DID, is dangerous or mean or angry. Well, actually, they can be angry, but but they're all basically parts of a constellation of an abused child that have split off to protect the original soul, like from the abuser. So they're all there just simply as protectors. Um, so when we watch movies like Split, we really we sort of demonize people with DID. And I also now think I don't know if my dad had DID. I don't I, I think maybe he just maybe he was just smoking too much weed or you know, I don't know. I really don't know now, but we've talked about it. I, I asked him recently, we had a really good repair. I asked him recently because he mentioned Stan in a text message and I said, hey, Dad, when you when you talk about Stan, what happens to me is that I get a whole bunch of fearful neurochemicals that dump into my body and it makes me super anxious and then I get shaky and it makes me it takes me about at least 20 minutes for my liver to be out of process at all and um, – could you do me a favor and could we never talk about Stan ever again? And he said, yes. And then he wrote a really beautiful message that was something like, I'm sorry, that must have been really painful for your fragile young psyche. And I'm ashamed and embarrassed. Um, Wow. And I'm sorry. And that was such a powerful moment. And then he sent me a picture of him standing by my crib when I was born mm. and I was like, I burst into tears. It was like, wow. it was that he, he was showing me the father that he'd wanted to be, you know? And, yeah. 
And so I can't, I can't, he, I, I believe he was my primary caregiver. I can't, I don't really know. I know my mum got really depressed after I was born because she had lo- previously lost a baby and she got postnatal depression. And so I think some of that, the depression, so, so if you have a blank face when you're staring at your baby, it's really scary to them, just so you know, people. <laughs> it's really, and I didn't know that, but apparently if you've got a blank face when you're staring at your baby, it's really scary to them. <laughs> that to be animated is really helpful to them and uh, showing delight is really helpful and they need your baby needs eye contact for the first 10 months from 6 to 12 inches from their face they need eye contact love delight hugs and just love and attention you know and then you end up with a secure baby but you can also smother them and then you'll get a preoccupied yeah, gotta gotta find the Goldilocks approach. I want to I want to mention before I lose the observation that the delivery you just recounted to your dad that phrasing seemed to be a really good use of textbook nonviolent communication. Oh, the way you yeah the way you phrased it was sort of textbook, not in a bad way. I mean, it really. I did watch it. It was six hours. I watched a um, so Marshall. I'm blanking on his last name. Exactly. But the, yeah, the nonviolent yeah. communication guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's 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 very subtle and very powerful when it's when it's used well, which which it sounds like you did when you spoke to your dad in a way, uh, avoiding the type of or mitigating the likelihood of somebody having a really strong defensive yeah. response. Yeah. Yeah. Right? I, lo- I guess I learned if you say, I feel, and then at the end you say, what do you think? <laughs> or you okay, say, yeah. well, this is what makes me feel. This is how it makes me feel. Or, um, And I, if I use science, which I'm getting smarter at now in terms of neurochemistry and um, the brain and pain and psychology um, and also, you know, parenting and, and attachment parenting and that sort of stuff. I just am so in love with it because I it's going to create a, you know, I want to help people create secure babies so that we have so many less people, you know, in pain. And it seems like one way or a very important way of doing that is working on yourself, right? And I, I just want to provide a, a little bit of context here for people who are listening, and that is I've loved your music both the music where you are a performer and then the music unknown to me oftentimes <laughs> has been written by you. It's really astonishing how many songs I have on playlists uh, that when I finally had my, uh, you know, that my Kobayashi like Kaiser Sose moment. And I was like, Oh my God, like it's everywhere. Sio's work is ever in my life. That, uh, I'm like cobwebs, babe. <laughs> so that's so that, that's that's part one, and then a reader of mine named Brian Elliott recommended after I wrote a blog post on a lot of the downsides of being public facing and having an audience recommended a profile of you called "How Sia Saved Herself," which was in Rolling Stone, and yeah, it compl- wrote that. that's right. 
and it completely captured my imagination and talked about many of the decisions you've made, which, uh, to, to borrow some phrasing that I've heard you use Mm -hmm. has allowed you to use your gifts without hurting yourself, Mm -hmm. right? Without just destroying your serenity. And, and, and we're, we're going to talk about that. I just wanted to give, uh, that story because how Sia saved herself, I think in order to save your kids, whether even if they haven't been born yet, it's important to work on yourself. And, but you're clearly doing and have done a lot of that. I want to ask you a, this was where the, I want to start somewhere weird came up a while back. And, and, and it relates well, it makes me think of a novel that really caught my imagination when I was a young kid, and that was Around the World in 80 Days. And I thought, well, maybe I'll start with Around the World of Sia in 80 Tattoos. You have quite a few tattoos. <laughs> I, want, I wanted to ask about a few of them. Okay. And, and I haven't seen all of these. I've just read about a few of them. So <laughs> tell me if they're not accurate. But do you, do you have a tattoo that says, don't think? Yeah. That was before I actually got into meditation and realized (laughs) (laughs) the irony of of that tattoo. (laughs) Because telling yourself not to think is thinking. (laughs) Yeah, right. right. Don't think of the pink elephant. Don't think of the pink elephant. Yeah, so uh, I realized, so for all your listeners who don't meditate, meditation is just a practice. It's nothing fancy it's just breathing (laughs) it's like you could just if you can just breathe and feel the air going in your nose and out your nose like and count to 10 and just feel be present with that feeling of the air touching your nostrils and do that that's a practice and then if you have a thought that's okay And, and it takes you away like in a car like say you get in the car with the thought and it takes you for a drive that's okay just when you realize, just go, oh, whoops, and go back to one and start counting from one again. And that's practice. It's just concentration practice. And then there are all sorts of other practices that you can sort of like delve into um, up after that. But it is just just even just concentration practice is so good for your brain and so good for your um, heart and your spirit. And it, the thing is, is when I hear people say, oh, I can't meditate, I'm not good at it. There's no being good at it because it's a practice. You can't be bad at it, actually. The only way of being bad at it is not doing it. (laughs) My George George Haas is is my meditation teacher. And (laughs) there's periods where I've gotten extremely low um, over the last three or four years. And (laughs) there were periods where I totally dipped out on meditating. And he'd come over, I'd be crying, I'd be whatever, like super, super suicidal, whatever. And he'd come over and he'd go, uh, have, have you thought about meditation? <laughs> 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 it's it's free. Um, <laughs> <laughs> There's data that says that it, it will help you. Um, <laughs> Uh, and I'll be like, fuck off, George. <laughs> and oh, how we laughed. <laughs> what does your practice look like? Uh, the the mutual friend who introduced us when we finally started communicating oh, yeah. directly has a TM practice, right? So uh, I'm, I'm sure does many other things, but has a transcendental meditation practice, 20 minutes, twice a day. Yeah. Uh, I don't the want first to be done. That. 
but I don't think you should have to pay for meditation. And also, it, mm-hmm. I know that I know the secret. <laughs> <laughs> I know yeah. what they do, and I'm sure you do yep. too. Um, yeah. That you know your mantra is just related to your age, and I think if anything helps you, do it. And if that's that's what you found and great, and it helps you, then do it. But I don't believe that meditation should be paid for. I don't believe that it's anything you can be given. I think that it should be a dana process and that it should be by donation only. That's just my personal opinion um, because – What I, does your practice look like? Oh, so my mind is just like about like probably 20 minutes a day. I will either listen to George's podcast. At least once a week I listen to George's podcast, which is I think Meta Group. Uh, George Haas, I don't know, Attachment Fair, something. Um, I'll find it. I'll find it, put it in the links. Um, but it's very heady. <laughs> I've said to him recently, George, we you need to do like an attachment repair for dummies because they like every, anyone I send to your podcast, that it's really hard for them to understand. It's really heady. And it did take me two or three years to understand it myself, and that's with him repeating himself for three years over and over again yeah. it's, it's meditation times attachment meditation yes. x um, attachment yeah. with george haas h-a-a-s yeah oh yeah so um okay my practice looks like this uh well i can do i'll do concentration practice uh, where i count or i'll do so shinzen is george's teacher so i guess i'm doing I'm, I'm using shinzen's model and that model is also like i do off it's feel in, feel out, so you can, like, what you're feeling in your body or, or what you can feel on the outside of your body or hear in, hear out is what you can hear inside your head or what you can hear outside of your, your head, exterior noise, like um, external noise. And then there's see in and see out, so that's, like, visual imagery or um, or you can look at a leaf and watch it just wave. And I, the best one for me is hear out, so that's what I do. And I think that's the best one for people who have extreme, like complex trauma, because it's externalizing in a way and keeps you grounded in the present moment. So right now, let's say, okay, I'm going, I'm meditating right now. So I'm listening to the sound of my air conditioner and the sound of your breathing, mm-hmm. and that's here out. <laughs> 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 and, that's, and then I just, when I get carried away with a thought, I just come back to hear out. Like, go, I, that's what I do. So hear, hear out is, is the one that I find the most easy, which is just focusing on all the noises around me externally that are in, in, our, in this um, perceived reality. Just a quick thanks to one of our sponsors, and we'll be right back to the show. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is inevitably Athletic Greens. I view it as my all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it in 2010 in The 4-Hour Body, and I did not get paid to do so. I've used it ever since. Developed from a complex blend of 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, Athletic Greens is a greens powder engineered to help fill the nutritional gaps in your diet. So I always try to do things through whole foods, but this covers my bases. 
Right now, Athletic Greens is offering you their vitamin D3K2 liquid formula free with your first purchase. Two vital nutrients for a strong immune system and strong bones. So simply visit athleticgreens.com slash Tim to claim this special offer today and receive the free D3K2 bundle with your first purchase. That's up to a one-year supply of vitamin D as added value when you try their delicious and comprehensive all-in-one Daily Greens product. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash Tim. Let me take a leap to something that I think is possibly related. You have written more than 100 pop songs for people <laughs> like Beyonce, Britney Spears, and Rihanna, uh, whose Diamonds hit number one, and so much more. I mean, the, the, the list is extremely long. You have, of course, then uh, so much of your own work in a, the performative sense on top of that. And what people might not realize is some of your songs that, and this has a personal meaning to me because this one has been on my playlist maybe the longest, and that is Breathe Me. Mm. The night you wrote that, you tried to kill yourself yeah. with 22 Valium and a bottle of vodka. Yeah. And so we're going to talk about that. And the question is, because I, I heard you on, for instance, Howard Stern in 2014, and mm -hmm. around the 16-minute mark, if people are interested, you play back a recording of coming up with the, I guess it was maybe the melody yeah. and some of the lyrics for Diamonds, yeah, which everybody would recognize. Yeah. And you you sounded like you were almost channeling because you're kind of mumbling nonsense syllables yeah. and then it just fell into place. That's how it is for me and that's how it is for Labyrinth and that's how it is for, I think, Eddie, Eddie Benjamin, who's going to be the next Justin Bieber. Um, it's just like a form of channeling and like words, sounds sort of come out and then sometimes if you're lucky well the melody is pure channeling and then the lyrics if you're lucky also will come out that was awesome when that happens when that accidentally happens that's uh, then i think i'm really getting out of the way of you know and that i'm allowing it to just flow through but yeah for me it's just getting out of the way getting out of the way and just trusting in the present moment that what I do next is going to be what is supposed to happen. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I'm going to ask a whole bunch of questions about process because I know yeah. my listeners love process. I love process. Yeah. And I have, I have a bunch of questions. The overarching question is, and the reason I asked about the taking of the, the drugs and the vodka and, and so on, yeah. is you seem to me to be very sensitive that is and not in a bad way no, this no. means that as, as an empath it's like if you were a scale you wouldn't just be a body weight scale you'd be like a jewel scale <laughs> where you have <laughs> you have a lot of sensitivity and i am i wonder a highly I, sensitive person yeah and so i wonder how much of the drug use and the, the suicidal ideation and so on is from an overwhelm of input or is it from other things? I'd just love well, to hear you speak to that. That's interesting that you ask because I always just figured, oh, it's because I, uh, something wrong with me, I'm broken, it's my early trauma, or so I'm an addict, or it's, I'm just like, I don't belong in this world, I don't know why I'm here, what, what's, you know, I'm just different, I, I feel like an alien, I don't know how people will be happy, I, don't, I just didn't have the right chemicals in my brain going on. And that was just, I now know, due to the first 10 months of my life. 
But I didn't know that then, and so I attributed it to all sorts of whatever I could, really. I'd just try and attach it to anything and be like, that's why I'm like this, or this is why I'm like, oh, that's why I'm like this. And um, uh, certainly that night um, that I wanted to die, you know, I could just remember just wanting to die, like just thinking I was so broken that nobody could fix me, and then waking up in the hospital and feeling very embarrassed because you can only, you can't commit suicide with Valium. You can commit sleep. (laughs) 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 And, you know, like a pussy because I think I must have called people. Like, I don't remember, but I must have called people because obviously someone came and took me to the hospital. (laughs) So... (laughs) You know, there's a, there's always been a part of me that wanted to live, and I think the part of me that I wanted to kill was the part of me that was in pain and not the real me, <laughs> not the real actual me who um, has levity and um, has found le- levity. Um, I've always had some levity, but I, I also had that extreme sensitivity and um, I had some yeah, just chemical issues in my brain. Just I didn't have the right biochemistry going on. Um, so I had like a broken, what's the frontal one called? Frontal cortex? Frontal. Prefrontal cortex? Yeah, that one. Yeah. <laughs> I had broken prefrontal cortex. <laughs> yeah, that one. I had that. That was broken. And so I was just, the suicidal ideation was just, it was like a broken record going on in my brain. It was actually, it's actually a way to regulate emotion. So I would feel extreme sadness. There was this idea that I, if I killed myself, I had power over it. (laughs) So if that I could stop the pain, but what I was afraid of was dying as well. (laughs) It was was such a catch 22. It was like, um, it's a very peculiar place to be in. And I, and then I realized, oh, I don't want to kill myself. I, I want to live. I have a broken brain. I've got to take medication. And when, as soon as I started taking medication, Prozac, I took um, six days later, the suicidal ideation was gone, completely gone. And I was sad for myself that I hadn't done it sooner. Yeah. I'd had that broken brain for so long that thought that there was something just very, very wrong with me. So I can't even remember the question you asked, but that answer? Uh, (laughs) You know, the question, my questions are really intended as prompts. They're not, (laughs) so it was more intended to open up what just came out. So, (laughs) so yes, you did answer it. And what you said makes me think about, a phrase or an expression that I heard from someone named Stanislav Grof, who is a famous Czech-born psychotherapist uh, who's done a lot of work with LSD-assisted psychotherapy, mm-hmm. developed something called holotropic breathwork also mm-hmm. as a substitute. But he, he's he been on the podcast. He was on at age 85 or 86. But one of the things that he's written about is the desire to kill oneself being a desire to kill the ego but the only form that most people recognize for doing that is killing the physical body yeah 
and that there are other approaches, right? You can, there are prescription options in some cases. Ketamine is particularly, and I, I, I was very grateful. I went through my testing of ketamine because literally two or three weeks later, a friend of mine reached out who's a police officer who was suicidal and he had battled depression. And really the suicidal ideation was, uh, I think in part because he had these loops that he could not interrupt these endless loops and he just wanted to stop the loops. It's usually PTSD that causes those loops, the broken prefrontal cortex. And ketamine is, I, I would view it not to belabor ketamine, but I, I just for people who may be hurting out there uh, and at the end of their rope, uh, ketamine is not additive in my experience like some other compounds. Let's just say psilocybin in looking at treatment-resistant depression, I think is more additive, but it is subtractive in the sense that it it hits pause on these loops and it allows you to experience yourself without the loop. And I think that you then can have the type of realization you did six days oh, later uh, saying, oh, I am a microbe. Why didn't I do this? <laughs> I am a microbe. I'm a microbe. I am upside down. Uh, <laughs> so, so let's, if we could, and I, and I know this doesn't have to be this example, but to talk about process, the diamonds example is, is a fun one, I think, because of how tightly it was done, given you had a, a, a plane to catch and a car waiting for you. But could, but but you you have these expressions and and you have uh, very clear thinking around your songwriting. And you've talked about I've heard you talk about strong titles and the you know the ability to to Google, right? In the case of Chandelier, yeah. uh, milking the metaphor. I mean you you think about this very concretely. Can you uh, just give an example of your process? Um, yeah, well, I mean, now it's sort of changing, but uh, when I first started, my manager said, well, he said to me something that, uh, you know, was monumentally important, which was basically what I needed to be doing was be writing high concept, he was calling it. I think he was calling it high concept. I think that's what he said. Mm-hmm. And then I Googled it and then it didn't make sense to me because it was talking about Big Brother. I was like, well, I don't get it. And I called him back and I was like, what do you mean exactly? And he was like, well, you take something and then, and I was like, oh, like, hang on. Do you mean like piggy bank? Like I'm not, I'm not your piggy bank. And he was like, yeah. And I was like, oh, okay. I think I've got it. All right. Like, cause I'm more, I don't want to be your piggy bank. Like, you know, and he was like, yeah, that's kind of it. Not it, but it. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, oh, okay. And then like, I don't know, a week later I wrote Titanium. And that was the first one I wrote. And then, so I started, I always channel the melody, but then I was, I was um, consciously writing down things that I thought would be good titles, Googleable titles, or that would be good metaphors or, catchy (laughs) um and so that was decided to be a fun game and so that's what i did for a long time um but yesterday i wrote a song that is just on the verge of cheese tastic um (laughs) (laughs) which is i wrote a song about new year's eve it's called three minutes to midnight so you put the song on three minutes to midnight and then everyone can count down together 
So if you just press play at three minutes to midnight, it's like I want everyone to play the song. And it's so silly and fun. And I, in that one, I almost freestyled the entire thing. So, yeah, I don't know. Like some days I'm very formulaic and some days um, and I, some days people like give me very specific, you know, what they want for an end title or, you know, of a movie, what they need or, you know, or, you know, what Rihanna's looking for at the moment, the sound she's looking for, or here's a track that she really likes, you know. So sometimes I get direction and I take it. I just take it. And if I use, I don't work so much with artists anymore, but it was so helpful to work with artists because, like, I am really good at, like, being of service. So I could totally eat shit sandwiches all day long, like, if they were, like, divas or whatever. And because I knew I would still be getting 50% or 30% or whatever of the publishing. <laughs> and if I could dissuade them from saying something extremely silly or bad then I'd done my job but you know that if they wanted to sing a song about something that I found banal or stupid or that that was fine that I'm just there to support what they're trying to do and yeah and I, I'm, I'll challenge them to some degree if it's very very bad um, but otherwise I'm just there to support them but that was really helpful to me because of that helped me I think in terms of becoming a director Right, right. And we're definitely going to talk about that. I for I just want to pause bookmark for a second. Yeah. For people who don't understand the peculiarities or the intricacies of the, the music business, and you said the, the percentages of publishing, can you explain what that means for folks yeah. just so they understand yeah. how different people make money in the music world? Yeah, so publishing is really the only growth industry in music. I mean, touring, if you're uh, Coldplay, you'll make money or you too. But touring, usually, you know, musicians will make a loss. Um, so um, really the only – and merch, you can sometimes make money, but really the, the best way to make money in music if you're going to be a musician is to write the music. And so there's a couple of different ways. There's pop splits and there's urban splits. Um, <laughs> and I can I can tell you that so I guess an urban split is like, whoever's in the room or whoever does even one tiny word or something, it all gets split between you maybe equally, I think. I think that's an urban mm-hmm. split. But I don't do that. <laughs> 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 and it was really funny because Benny Blanco, like, wrote me and was like, why don't you – Why don't you?" he's a producer. He, he's uh, – like, he did um, a bunch of Katy Perry hits and he just writes hits galore. Hits galore, hits galore. He stopped counting after he had 10 top number ones, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, he was he was writing me and he was like, why are you, because he was working with a partner um, on producing a song. And um, I believe that if I write the melody in the top line, I get 50% of the song. Um, and if you write the chords, you get 50% of the song. And do the production, you get paid for your production um, separately, aside from getting paid for the writing. So a producer, a good producer these days will make 30, 40 grand for producing a song. That means producing a song means putting all of the sounds in there, all of the piano sound and then it'll be a violin sound or a, or a, the sound of the bass and the, and the beat. That's called production. The songwriting process is literally just chords and melody 
and lyrics. So chords are worth 50% of publishing and lyrics and melody are worth 50% of publishing. And then if you go and produce it, you get a fee for producing. So I'm so lucky I wrote the chords to Chandelier. Um, Can you explain what that means? Because I think chords and I think strumming like a C uh, or a D on a guitar, but I don't. I don't know if I'm thinking of the same thing. Yeah, that's right. That's about it. Like it's so a chord is. Um, I guess it's three fingers on a piano. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And they make a chord, and so okay. it'd be like the, the. I'm doing up the. I'm doing the root note of a chord. So it'd be like um. The, 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 that's four different like um, they're they're just four different notes but i I got it and then you you give that to the producer they put it they take that they put it in just since you mentioned the the piano on the part chandelier this that was chandelier i did i did write the chords um but i then i sent them to jesse chatkin and i said can you make a song out of this and he did all the production and i'm nice Mm -hmm. so i gave him 25 percent of the publishing but I'm, I'm not. I'm not required to do that. Like I could have right. taken a hundred percent of the song and paid him his production fee of forty thousand dollars. Mm. Let's say. And and melody is the sound of the voice or the. That's just the. Whatever. Right, like improv jazz. Yeah. Um. It's that's melody, and then. Um. Once you add lyrics to that, it's called top line. Uh, Melody and lyrics cool. together is called top line. Got it. And so I am a top line writer. But I actually, <laughs> now I guess I, I'm also, I can write some chords. But I'm, I'm pretty shabby at it. But I do, <laughs> I do like clang, clang away on the piano occasionally and send Jesse like videos of me playing the piano so he can see which chords I'm playing. <laughs> <laughs> and then he will build songs out of those and I and because I appreciate him and I know I couldn't do it without him I always give him 25 percent but but again in another world he, he wouldn't be entitled to that he would get a production fee so but I, I like to be generous <laughs> yeah and when somebody says for instance when, if you were to say I, I have fifty percent of publishing, yeah. what is that fifty percent of? Is it is it specifically what radio stations yeah. pay? Oh, okay, yeah, it is. is. It? It's it's across the board. It means so like okay, on a really highly listened to commercial radio station, let's say, and I'm just this is a random number that's not necessarily correct. Let's say every time Chandelier gets pay, played, they pay my publisher a dollar, right? So yep. now I get 75 cents of that and Jesse gets 25 cents of that. And, um, and my, um, my publishing company, I think they'll take, uh, I think they take 15% or something, um, as an admin, uh, fee. Yep. It's um, like a book agent. Yeah. 15%. Yeah. yeah. And it used to be 30 that, uh, because I used to need a publisher but I don't actually need a publisher now because I don't need them to introduce me to any songwriters or other songwriters or artists. I don't need the services that they offer. So I only need them to collect money for me. So, um, so that's how I managed to get um, it down to 15%. <laughs> right. 
Because <laughs> <laughs> most most people are still paying thirty percent of their to their publishers. So, do you get paid when albums are sold digitally as well, or is that completely separate? I do, but I don't know how, and that would be a question for my manager. I really have <laughs> <laughs> no problem. We don't have to royalties, and I don't understand that one at all. <laughs> now, now process wise, you were talking about the volume of work that you do, and I found a an interview you did with The Guardian in 2016. This is a while ago. So I, I, this may have changed, but I'd love to hear you expand on it a little bit. And here's the quote. I love the idea of how fast we can make the song, but I don't, ne- I don't think that I'm necessarily a super talented songwriter. I just think I'm really productive. One out of 10 songs is a hit. So where a lot of people will spend three weeks on one song, I will write 10 in three weeks. Maybe the song that they sculpt is going to be as successful as just one of the 10 that I wrote. Is that is that still true? Yeah, that's definitely still true. But I also think I've gotten a little bit better at picking tracks that are hits. So sometimes people send me tracks. So, okay, so for the people listening, tracks are when someone, a producer, sends you a already fully done bottom line, <laughs> which, <laughs> which is... All the music, all the sounds, the, the the beat, everything, the chords, it's all there. And that so they would that's fifty percent right there. They send you fifty percent of a song. And if I hear the way the chords move and think that it's a, a smash, because I actually record myself to everything I listen to the very first time. So I press play when I listen to something for the first time, I press play and record on my computer and I'll sing along to it and see if I can intuit where it's going. And if I manage to intuit where it's going and it sounds good and something works, then I, I I'm just better at picking now what I think will be a hit or what will be catchy because I do believe now that pop music is really just indoctrination, which is sad because it used to be music used to be good. (laughs) 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 once upon a time when when music was good (laughs) no there's still great music out there but i've never i never hear it (laughs) apparently but i don't listen to music i just watch television and movies so that's probably why the only person i listen to is labyrinth (laughs) is that true you you don't you don't ever listen to background music? No. Oh yeah, I'll put into because um, I just got Apple Music. I don't have Spotify or Pandora, but I just got uh, um, Apple Music, and so now I just type in <laughs> theta waves or beta waves or alpha wave, and I just press play on one of those, and then I'll meditate or whatever. But if I'm not watching television, I'm talking to a friend. I'm not usually listening to music. It's not what I do. It's very interesting. I, Has yeah. that always been the case or did that at some point no. just be, feel too much like work to you or you can't listen to it without breaking it down and thinking about the top line and the this and no. that and the other thing? No, it's weird. It's just I did it very much. I was obsessive as a child um, around it. I would listen to, and I've said this a billion times, so apologies to those who've heard this before. 
Um, but I would listen to that part in the Doors um, song where, uh, in a Doors song where it goes, and I liked that part so much, but I just didn't care about the rest of the song, so I just recorded that part like 50 times onto a 30-minute tape, and I would literally just listen to that over and over again, and I would sing along to it. And and the same with the this Chrissy Hind one, the don't get me wrong, wrong. I still can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. I've never been able to do it. And I can't like I can't do it like she does it. And I would I would try so hard, and I just technically could not do it, and I still can't do it. And so that's exciting because I love not being able to do something. Because um, <laughs> I was sort of recently thinking, oh wow, I've met all my professional and personal goals. What, like, what do I do now? It's nihilism, or is it full engagement? You know. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I, was, so I guess I could still keep trying that <laughs> fucking crazy <hide> lick. <laughs> but yeah, I was super busy of, um, with music as a child. Um, I didn't have a television until I think I was 10 or 11 and then I became addicted to television, but I still listened to music, some music, not much, usually what whatever my parents were listening to. And I was like Soul to Soul and Malcolm McLaren and, well, it, earlier my dad, when my dad was around, it was all 60s like Motown and girl groups and um, really just fun and pop, that sort of stuff. And then when he left, it came... I think my stepfather, he more, I think he brought the Malcolm McLaren and the Soul to Soul into the house. And, um, mm. and so Karen Wheeler, um, oh, Terrence, Trent Darby, Stevie Wonder, Aretha Franklin, Chrissy Hind, and Annie Lennox sort of became these voices that I, when Mariah Carey actually, these voices I just started to mimic. I just wanted to, so the obsession for me as a child was I would mimic these artists until I thought I sounded exactly like them. So then I guess when I when I sang the first original song ever that um, I I just I had the voice that was an amalgamation of all of those people that I had studied, and I, and I didn't it wasn't very good. I mean, there's an amazing video of me when I'm 12, and I'm really a bad singer, and I want I'm definitely going to put it out sometime. Um, <laughs> I want people to know that you, like, I was no Christina Aguilera. Like, she was incredible. Like, when she was ten years old, she's doing these insane technical runs. I was a very mediocre singer at twelve, and I went on yeah. this talent show and super mediocre. I sent it to basically. This is silly. Again, I'm bringing up the Kardashians, but I sent it to North because. Kim told me that North got sad because she could, Kim Kardashian told me that North um, got sad because she couldn't sing Chandelier as well as I did it. And I, so I sent her the video of me when I was 12. And that's amazing. And I said, look at this. This was how, this was, I couldn't sing at all when I was 12. Like, you're only little. Like, you're going to be an amazing singer. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I mean, oh, 
of course, they're so nice and funny, but it, it it's pretty hilarious video. It's like I, I'm, I might have a rat's tail. <laughs> I'd love to. Oh, that makes that makes two of us. I had a rat tail at twelve on Long Island, but I I wasn't I wasn't doing any singing. <laughs> I couldn't have had my legs further apart. Well, I would love to see the video, so please do put that out. I do. I'm uh, definitely, definitely going to do that because I want I want kids to know that you don't. I don't know. It. I wasn't always a good singer. Uh, that yeah. I, 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 and I've gotten better. I think even just over the years, last twenty years, I think I I didn't really belt. That means sing out really big loud. Um, for the listeners, I didn't really belt until I was uh, maybe six years ago, ten years ago. Wow! No, ten very years recent. Ago. Yeah, because yeah, still, yeah, I was in my whisper album. <laughs> 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 I had yet to find my voice. <laughs> <laughs> so you you have honed your voice, and we're going to talk. I want to ask you about the movie. Before we get to the movie, I have to I have to ask you about the decision to at least in many cases hide your face and get away with a lot, right? Because uh, and I'm reading here this piece from the Rolling Stone profile. And I'll just read one paragraph, and then I have a couple of other additions. But the success of Titanium, which is a whole story unto itself that we won't get into right now, but uh, people can people can look up the song on Wikipedia. Made Sia one of the most in demand songwriters in the business, but she needed to put out one last album to get out of an old publishing deal. She said she'd do it on the condition that she would have artistic control and do no promotion, no touring, no press, no media appearances. <laughs> All right, now you've also sung with your back to audiences. You've been on the cover of magazines with your face entirely covered. Why did you make these decisions? Um, well, it's really, I, I really can't really 100% remember the genesis, but I, I've got this vague recollection that I thought, all right, I'll put this blonde, I'll sing with my back to the audience and I'll put this blonde bob on other people. And then everyone can be the pop star. And then I cast Maddie in Chandelier and she was so incredible and engaging and lovable. Um, and does she pronounce her last name Ziegler or how does yeah, she? Ziegler, yeah. yeah. Maddie, uh, Maddie. So that for people who don't know, this is a, an incredible dancer. Unbelievable. And actor, by the way. She an is actor. Oscar worthy. It's crazy. So she um, was, I didn't realize was going to be so engaging and wonderful and lovable and that I was going to want to immediately like have her in my life all the time <laughs> and so I guess in the beginning you'll see um there are pictures of lots of different people wearing the blonde bob in the artwork for I think a thousand forms of fear I think because originally I was just going to have other people like and celebrities like I asked Kanye if he would just wear the blonde bob and sing my song or whatever 
or I just I thought, oh, well, I'll ask Robert Pattinson, or I'll just I'll ask other people if I was going to ask Robert Pattinson if he would do the cover of Rolling Stone, um, like if I could just use put his face over my face on a stick, you know. <laughs> <laughs> And I, so I had all these ideas like how I it would be funny like to like hide from celebrity or just ask other people if I could borrow their celebrity just for the day. And, um, and so that never really evolved because of my partnership with Maddie because I fell madly in love with her as a person and as an artist and as a collaborator. And so suddenly I was just like, I don't want to work with anyone else. <laughs> I love this person. She's so wonderful. And um, and that and so I guess she became a, almost an avatar. And I know a lot of most of the tweens and little people think that she is, is Sia. When they meet me, they're so disappointed. <laughs> 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 and actually, often we're out me and her together, and often. People will come and most of the time I try and bodyguard her and I'll be like, oh, unfortunately we can't do photos right now. She's not supposed to be in town or no one's supposed to know where she is because it's it's getting gnarly for her, people wanting um, selfies and stuff like that now. But on the rare occasion that it's a very sweet little tiny person, they'll say, you know, oh, would you mind taking a picture? They they think I'm her mum. <laughs> <laughs> Which I love because I, I mean, and also like, you know, and I, I dated a couple of celebrities, you know, over the last few years, but like, I love that one time I was on a date with someone and, and they recognized the person I was on the date with and they were like, oh my God, could you take a, a picture with, with him, uh, with me, like me and him? And I was like, of course. And so it was just so, I loved being the plus one. I was like, I, I would love to be a plus one. Because <laughs> um, I like being entertaining and fun and nice and friendly to my friends, and obviously to my fans or whatever, or to you, or like you know, people who are, are trying to make the world a better place. But like, I don't care about adulation from people I don't know or who I don't know. I just I get my validation elsewhere, and so celebrity is is this huge gaping fame is like just a huge disappointment like for those of you who are listening who want to be famous just do something else it's not what you think it is it's yeah it's, it's toxic yeah that's the best way to put it it's not what you think it is yeah. <laughs> highly accurate yeah. Um. yeah so i don't know but yeah i fell in love with maddie and then then the big wig was actually, I think my ex-husband was like, you should wear a really big wig, like like an anime character. And so I did that at the Grammys, and then that became kind of, I guess, iconic. <laughs> and then yeah, I would say that became a Halloween costume, and um, and then Maddie also became a Halloween costume in Chandelier, and that was conscious. I was like, I want to always make outfits of or um, looks that can be replicated for very little money because I want people to be able to afford to dress up as the pop star. So, oh, I had no idea. Yeah, and the same with my movie. All of the outfits in the movie I'm having made for Halloween in, like, affordable. 
like affordably, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, we've alluded to the movie a few times now. Why don't we tell people more about it? Okay. Could you, what's, what's the Genesis story? Why do a movie? Oh, uh, yeah, I don't know. I was very, (laughs) (laughs) I was about, I don't know, maybe 15, 16 years ago now. I don't know. I thought of us, I just had a story come into my head. Uh, I wrote it down and then um, many years later it evolved into a screenplay and then it was a a kind of mediocre, pretty good indie screenplay. But my best friend who is a screenplay writer, he said, I mean, this is great, nice indie, you could do this. It wasn't a musical. I, it was pure narrative. I was very against making a musical because I really wanted people to view me as a, a serious director. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was really, because I really thought that they'd think I was a wanker and it would be like a, it was just like a vanity project or like an actor making an album or, you know, I was scared of judgment basically. And, um, and then he said, oh, we could make this, I could, I could help you with this and we could make it better. So I started from the scratch with Dallas Clayton and he's my best friend, the one I was talking to before I talked to you, just so I could go get some co-regulation in because I was nervy. Um, <laughs> um, and, um, and it worked. 20 minutes. Oh, yeah, that's a top tip. 20 minutes of co-regulation with someone that you trust and that trusts you that is like you have a 50-50 relationship with, 20 minutes of conversation with them will make you not want to do a drug, smoke a cigarette, gamble, have sex, porn, shop. Like it, it's the cure to addiction. It's connection. 20 minutes of co-regulation yeah. with the person that you trust. That's, um, mm. that's the solution. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, Bill Bill W. Um, from AA, he just sort of happened upon it, like, accidentally, I think. But now it's proven science, you know. So, anyway, back to the movie. Yeah, uh, we wrote it, and I was too scared to make it. Then uh, some personal uh, went through a divorce. You know, I think he had wanted to, ju- he'd wanted to like, put babies in me and me not to be working so much, and and I... I realized I was I was in the wrong relationship. And so I yeah, that was very devastating and that's been about a four year recovery from that divorce. And to help me through it, I guess Dallas, my best friend, he was he kept saying to me, We went and saw La La Land and he said he just said to me, You could do that And I was like, You think so? Because I loved it And he was like, Yeah, you could totally do that And I was like really think so because I'd always directed with a partner called Daniel Askill um that's who I directed all my music videos with so I wasn't sure if I was really a director or was I just an artist with good ideas but it turned out Lena Dunham and Dallas they said to me you can do it you can do it we like you'll totally be able to do it and uh because of who they are to me good friends that I trust I guess they gave me the self-esteem that I was lacking and so I called up Vincent Landay who had been producing, who's produced nearly all of Spike Jones's movies um, and he's one of my favourite directors and um, done adaptation and being John Malkovich and, and, I, and I said, can we try again? Because we we'd talked before and he said, yes, okay, and also someone 
like maybe three people had said to me, also, you're an idiot. You've got to turn it into a musical. You're such an idiot. It's like having a blank Scrabble piece and not using it. You're an idiot. And so finally, <laughs> I, <laughs> I finally, I caved. And, you know, and of course, then uh, the budget like went from 4 million to 16 million. <laughs> and I was like, oh. <laughs> so, but I did a good deal. Like, I just, I got two, um, two record labels in a bidding war. And then um, for my albums, and then I just said, whoever's going to lend me $16 million is who I'm going to go with. <laughs> nice, nice. So, so that's what happened, and I, um, I love the movie. I'm proud of it. It's, it's a beautiful film. It's, um, it, What's the name it's of the called, movie? It's called Music. Dig it. Yeah, and um, that's um, actually Maddie Ziegler plays a character called Music who is a teenager who's um, suffering severely from autism and she's quite low-functioning. She, she is nonverbal, although she does have echolalia, so she, she can repeat what you say, but she doesn't generate her own vocabulary sentences. So anyway, that was really scary for Maddie. I remember on the first day she came, I, like, and I cast everyone basically off Twitter. I, I just was looking... Who can sing? Who can sing? Who doesn't sing like a like a white like like musical theater major? Who like who, who can sing? <laughs> when I I basically just tweeted the people I wanted in my movie, and they said yes. <laughs> and um, and then and I and then Maddie was really scared because I based the character on a, a guy called Stevie, who I used to sit next to in an AA meeting on Sunday mornings at the log cabin. His mother was the deaf interpreter, and so he obviously himself wasn't an addict, but he was in there with her because she couldn't afford care for him while she worked. And I fell in love with Stevie. I, I and I sat next to him, and I don't know. I just I fell in love with him, and I'd already had this story in my head. And so the character was always um, suffering from autism in my or, or suffering or I don't know flourishing from autism, depending on how you view it. And then, yeah, when I met Stevie, I was like, oh, my gosh, like, oh, he's so beautiful and perfect and I love him. And so I taught Maddie all of his mannerisms and his vocalizations and and she got scared. She got scared. I remember the first day that her and Kate Hudson were going to come to rehearsal and she got there because I bought a house across the road for her to live in um temporarily because she was always here in town doing auditions and things like that and I didn't think it was good for her to always be in different hotels and stuff like that um so um so she came over well across the road (laughs) she came over she came over and I could see something was off and um I said what's going on and she burst into tears and she said I'm just really scared I don't want anyone to think I'm making fun of her and she is such a sensitive beautiful person and I just said to her I will never let that happen I will not let that happen I will you can and you can have final say over the cup like I will never let that happen and then we spent three days working on all of like Stevie's utterances and vocalizations and tics and um movements and um and so yeah I've got so I have Stevie to thank for this amazing character that you'll see in the movie and then inside of her head takes place all of these musicals 
where she's unburdened by any of her, you know, physical disabilities, um, the ticks and the pain and the, and so she, she is her body is free from 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 autism, and um, and all the associated comorbid collection of things that you can have, and everyone with autism is different, every single one. There's no two that are alike. So when we sent it off to the Child Mind Institute to make sure that we had done a good job representing the autism community, um, I was really hopeful that we'd done a good job. I felt proud. I thought we had. But they came back with 100% um, approval. And that, to me, was uh, the day that I cried <laughs> and felt relief and thought, okay, I've made a movie that's meaningful and that is interesting and moving and fun and funny. And that's what I'd wanted to do. So, uh, you know, it definitely, it's a, it's a, like you bring your Kleenex, but you know, you get your whole, you get your Hollywood endings. So don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. I mean, it sounds like a real, this is the hardest thing I've ever done. A real journey. A real journey. I, I think that's why I've also been in bed for three years. <laughs> <laughs> What keeps you what 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 keeps you going? What gives you the most energy these days? I mean, you've you've seemingly ticked off nearly every professional accolade and success you could ever want. Yeah, I've got no goals. What, <laughs> just being a mom. So, I just adopted two kids. How did you decide to do that? I saw one of them on a on a HBO. So yeah, I'm, I'll tell you, I'm so obsessed with television. That's why I'm friends with the Kardashians, and like Kathy Griffin, and like my my interior designer was on Million Dollar, <laughs> like designers or whatever, and Bravo. Like my, I'm friends with Bethany Frankel for fuck's sake. Like I'm I'm into <laughs> television and reality TV, and I I basically audition all my friends through reality TV to decide whether or not not they're safe or not and then I go and find them and ask them to be my friend so <laughs> and then I've got my regular friends my regular circle of friends but I'm only friends the only celebrities I'm really friends with are reality tv stars <laughs> now when you say safe that just means that they're they're so aware of the public and exposed to the public that nothing weird related to your well, just even fame will happen no just psychologically yeah. not fucked like not gonna mm -hmm. harm but they're just good yeah. people, like they're good, mm. well-meaning people. Um, and how, how do your kids? How do how does the adoption fit into this? Oh, um, well, um, uh, yeah. How does it? Why did I start? <laughs> you mentioned HBO somehow. Oh yeah, so so I, <laughs> that's exactly right. Um, so H, so I was watching a documentary on HBO, uh, i.e., reality TV. Um, but it was about the foster care system. And I saw a boy on there and he was 16 at the time and I thought, I can be his mother. And what a hilarious, a like, overstatement that was. Um, and I found him. <laughs> I found him and he was 18 by the time I found him. And I met him and he said, can I bring my friend? He won't make it. He's too pretty. Um, and he's I too said, what? He's too pretty. Oh, pretty. 
Yeah. And um, and I said, yeah, okay, because I had two spare bedrooms. And um, and I, like an absolute maniac, took them home that day. <laughs> and they were both 18 <laughs> at the time. And the last year has just been, uh, you know, an absolute roller coaster, but just the most rewarding and the best, best thing ever. You know, like being a mummy, uh, like a god mummy to Maddie is like, has been the most meaningful thing to me over the last, you know, six, what, eight years, six, seven years. And now being a mummy to my boys is now the most meaningful thing to me. Like, and that's mm. all I got. That's all I got. I don't care about anything else. I just want to make sure they don't end up in the 5% that end up, you know, because they, they statistically should be end up in jail for murder. And, um, with the histories that they have, the trauma histories that they have. And, um, I want to keep that up. I, I want to fuck the system. I think the system is fucked. And um. I want to help keep them out of jail so then they can change the world. Hmm. Well, thank you for doing that. It's something that, you know, I, I can't even, um, I, I can't put myself in your shoes, of course. I mean, it must be such a multifaceted emotional experience. Uh, some of my closest friends have adopted kids and, and actually uh, one uh, woman I'm very close to had a, a somewhat similar situation in the sense that they, she and her partner were planning on adopting one child and they came home with three. <laughs> and then they wrote a movie about it. this one was a different different couple but similar <laughs> idea i suppose and it's uh you know parenting parenting i would imagine i don't have kids of my own but it seems like the most rewarding and most difficult job imaginable and um Oh, I Certainly, all, all all the more so, I would imagine, when you are picking up where the system has left off. I would oh, imagine. Yeah. I mean, I have a newfound, complete, like newfound respect for all parents. Any, like you know, I I feel like I'm lucky because they they I mean they have structure, but they have trauma so my job now is to use what i've learned in my attachment repair um therapy with george haas and use that with them to create a secure base for them and to help them their brains to neuroplasticity of their brains to be able to become secure as well that's my only goal at the moment is to um help my children earn secure attachment um because mm. yeah they've been in at least 18 different homes each of them um, wow. Yeah, and and uh, and they've been treated abominably, and um, yeah, I just really so I'm just lucky I'm able to I have the resources that I can get them the kind of help that they really need, and, and I'm and I'm grateful that it only took a year for me to like get them on board, you know. But it, it's it was, incredible. It was a tough year. <laughs> But yeah, I bet. I was a lot, I was an Alanon ninja. Well, Sia, I know we're coming up on time. You're, I mean, Dad, we we don't know each other that well, but the the little the little contact that we have had, I've really enjoyed. I love your work. I enjoy your work. I enjoy you and what you're doing in the world. People can find you on Twitter at Sia, the best handle ever. Eh? At S I. <laughs> 
Instagram is at Sia Music. Of course, I'll link to everything that we've I don't discussed. Really I don't. I mean, I, I occasionally tweet, but I don't really run any of those. They're they're more marketing things. You're being very nice. Thank you. But I'm mentioning them, <laughs> and also, you know, I just realized as I'm looking at my hands right now that I do know the difference between supine and prone because when you're doing a chin up and your palms are facing you, that's supination, which you can remember because you could put soup in your hands to eat it with your palms up. And then when you have your hands facing down or away, that's pronation. So if you're lying on your stomach, that would be prone. And if you're laying on your back, that would be supine. Uh, just to come full circle with the prone <laughs> and supine. I, I just love learning. I don't care if I'm wrong. Uh, see is there is there anything else that you'd like to to say before we bring to a close this first conversation on the podcast uh no i just i mean i feel like we could talk for seven hours (laughs) i bet we could i bet we could we definitely could thank you for all of the good things that you're bringing to the world i really appreciate it really really interesting um and broad um, coverage of, you know, what's globally of importance, I guess. I appreciate what mm-hmm. you do. Um, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah, I really appreciate it. And <laughs> I appreciate you taking the time. So thank you, thank you, thank you once of again. Of course, of course. And hopefully uh, once this uh, pesky virus gets handled we'll have a chance to actually spend time in person at some point yeah that would be awesome i'll bring down i would love it i would love it and uh to everybody listening we will link to everything in the show notes all of the resources all of the concepts uh the movie certainly all of the handles everything you can imagine we will link to in the show notes at tim.blog forward slash podcast as usual you can just search sia it's uh very memorable very easy to spell s-i-a and i would imagine almost every language so you'll be able to find it at tim.blog and until next time thanks for tuning in hey guys this is tim again just a few more things before you take off number one this is five bullet friday do you want to get a short email from me would you enjoy getting a short email from me every friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend and five bullet friday is a very short email where i share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out. Just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com all spelled out and just drop in your email and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs. Small businesses have unique needs. A lot of you know this. I know this. And even with the uncertainty these days, one thing stands unchanged. And that is the importance of having the right people on your team. But hiring can be hard. It can be really expensive if you make mistakes, very painful if you get it wrong. I've certainly had that experience and I'm not eager to repeat it. So I try to do as much upfront screening as possible. When your business is ready to make the next hire, LinkedIn Jobs can help you screen candidates with the hard and soft skills that you're looking for. 
They'll match your position with qualified members so that you can find the right person quickly. Using LinkedIn's active community of more than 690 million professionals worldwide, LinkedIn Jobs can help you find and hire the right person faster. So when your business is ready to make that next hire, find the right person with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want and get the first $50 off. Just visit linkedin.com slash Tim. Again, that's linkedin.com slash Tim to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by Thrive Market. Thrive Market saves me a ton of money and it's perfect for these crazy times. Thrive Market is a membership-based site on a mission to make healthy living easy and affordable for everyone. You can regularly save 25 to 50% off of normal retail prices with member-only prices for anything you can imagine, really. Whether it's keto, paleo, gluten-free, vegan, whatever, you can sort by that. You can find all types of food. You can find supplements. You can find non-toxic home products, clean wine, dog food, just about anything. And let me give you a personal example of just how much you can save. So my last order, I ordered Primal Kitchen Mayonnaise, which is made with avocado oil. It's delicious. Justin's Almond Butter. And the first was 25% off. The Justin's Almond Butter was 30% off. Rouse Homemade Marinara Sauce, which is awesome, 26% off. All said and done, at the end of my shopping, I saved $39 on my order. So members, and I'm a member, can earn wholesale prices every day and save an average of $30 on each order. I'll come back to that. And through Thrive Gives, their one-on-one membership matching program, every paid Thrive Market membership is matched with a free one for a low-income family in need. So go to thrivemarket.com slash Tim today to give Thrive Market a try. You can select the membership model that best fits your lifestyle. They have one-month and 12-month membership options. Choose a free gift, up to $22 in value when you join today and purchase the one-year membership. And just remember, Thrive Market membership is risk-free. You can take the first 30 days to decide if Thrive Market is right for you. If it's not, just cancel within those 30 days and get a full refund. This is what I offered my mom. So again, that's thrivemarket.com slash Tim. By the way, my mom kept using it. Thrivemarket.com slash Tim. Check it out. 